Amen. Thank you, Kayla. Good morning. How's it going, you guys? It is good to finally be here with you permanently uh, in a way. You know, that's great. Um, yeah, the wait is finally over. And uh, I am just so excited to begin this next season of life and ministry together as a church as we seek to follow Jesus together and make him known here in Redlands and throughout the, word, uh, the world. And um, I just want to say thank you. You guys have been so welcoming to me and my family. You've been so generous uh, towards us, uh, just so hospitable and pursuing us and relationship with us. Uh, for the meals that you guys made for us this last week, you fed us well. Uh, huge blessing. And uh, we're just, we quickly, you're making Redlands feel more and more like home every day and, and, and more like our family. So I just want to say thank you. It is great to be here. Um, man, I, I thought maybe over the next three weeks, it'd be really key for us uh, to get off on the same foot, uh, the same page, uh, to really get first things first, uh, you could say. And so what I want to do is look at three different texts in the New Testament and make sure that we are really together about a few really core key things. And so next week, I want to talk about the gospel and how it's of greatest importance to us and how it really transforms our life. And then in a few weeks, I want to talk about success and how God defines success because we want to live out a successful life the way that God defines it. Uh, But today, I want to look at Jesus and who he is and really explore the role uh, that he is playing in our lives and why we seek after him. Um, I, uh, I love going to a restaurant. I don't know about you, uh, but growing up, uh, we didn't go to restaurants that often, but when we did, it was like my favorite thing in the world. Uh, Pizza Hut was kind of where we went, you know, when we got the little bucket pin filled up, and so uh, that was like the highlight for me. Um, but I, there, there's a lot of great restaurants in Redlands. We've already been to a few. Um, I still have some on my mental list that I want to check out. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but we all know there's a few things that make for a good restaurant, right? Uh, the food matters, okay? If the food's not good, it's not a good restaurant. Um, the ambiance matters to us, some things like that, you know, the location, parking, those kinds of things. But who your server is, I'd say, is really near the top. You know, the customer service part of eating is, is key. If it's good food, customer service terrible, it's hard to keep going back. And uh, we all know what we want in a server, Right? We want a server who is really attentive to us, who really pays attention, and they're even proactive. You know, you just finished your water, and they're already bringing you more, you know, that kind of thing. We want them to be attentive to us, to, to care. We want them to come and bring things quickly, but then to quickly leave, right? We don't like servers to linger. We don't, I once had a server sit at the table with me and try to talk, and I was just like, I don't want to be rude, and I didn't say anything because I'm not the kind of guy who would say anything. I'm just like, yeah, this is normal, but inside I'm like, please, you know, I'm here with these people. Um, I even went to breakfast with my mom uh, like a year ago, and the server was so friendly. Uh, She was great, but then after a while, we began to notice it was a little too great. Uh, We'd be in the middle of a conversation. She'd be filling up water at someone else's table, eavesdropping on our conversation, and just be like, oh, yeah, that's happened to me too. We're like, whoa, you know, this lady's just crossing the line, right? We just want people to come, serve us, and then leave, right? Get out of our hair in a real sense. That's what we want in a server. And as Kayla just read, we're looking at John chapter 4 this morning, and we're told about these people who are seeking Jesus because he could do things, right? They wanted Jesus to sort of come when they wanted him to come and then leave when they wanted him to leave and kind of just leave them alone and to bring good things into their lives, 
He was viewed as a, as a server. And if we're really honest, I think you and I can view Jesus the same way. We want to call on him to do certain things in our lives, and then we kind of want him just to leave us alone, you know, so that we can go on doing the things that we really want to do. And Jesus pushes back pretty hard on them because they are seeking him more out of what they can get from Jesus rather than just who he really is. And Jesus shows them, and what he's showing us this morning is that he is not, nor will he ever be, a means to an end. But Jesus is our great end. He is the end. Uh, So, I'm wondering this morning, this is the first question that we're going to ask. We're going to look at two things, but the first is a question, why do you seek Jesus this morning, like today? I mean, maybe you've been going to church every single week for 70 years. That's amazing, but why do you seek Him, even today? Or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you feel very welcome here, um, and that God speaks to you, um, and that you keep coming back. But but why do you seek Jesus? Why are you here this morning? Or maybe you're here and you're like, I don't even know why, I just always come. But your heart has grown really bitter and callous to God uh, for whatever reason. Well, why are you here? Why do you seek Jesus? But secondly, we're going to see that Jesus proves emphatically in this passage that he is not a means to an end, but that he is our end. So let's look first, why do you seek Jesus? We begin to see this down in verse 39, and what we're going to see here is John is going to go to great lengths to show us a contrast. He's showing us a contrast between two different groups of people and why they are seeking after Jesus. So let's look here in verse 39 again. It says, what many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said this, she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed Galilee, And here's John's commentary. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So the first group that John's contrasting is the Samaritans. We see them in verses 39 through 42. It's probably a paragraph in your Bible. Uh, These are people that pure-blooded Jewish people despised. They looked down on them because they were only half Jewish. See, what had happened is over the years as Israel had been conquered by various nations like Babylon and Assyria and Greece and Rome, this group of people began to intermarry with those people that had conquered them and they began to reproduce and in reproducing they were no longer these pure-blooded Jewish people. And so because of this, they were looked down on. They were outsiders. They were second-class citizens in a Jewish person's eyes, right? They were oppressed in that way. And Jesus, in the story prior to this one, if you've read the Bible, you're probably really familiar with it. It's the woman at the well, right? He meets a woman at the well, and and her life is, is dramatically changed. 
She's a woman who had many husbands in her life, and the woman that she's with, right, in the moment, she's not actually married to this guy, and and Jesus knows this. He meets her right where she's at. He connects with her, but He wants to redeem her and lift her shame. And so, she goes into the town after He's revealed all this stuff to her, and she tells this whole town about everything that Jesus has said about our whole interaction. And so we just picked it up in verse 39, right? That's giving a summary of this incredible story that Jesus has connected with this woman and begun to lift her shame. But then look at verses 41 to 42. What does it say about the Samaritans? What does it say? It says, they believed him. What does that mean? It means that they believed Jesus really was the son of God who was sent into the world to rescue and redeem it. So, this is the response that Jesus is receiving from outsiders. This is the response. They believed Him. They worshiped Him. They seek Him. Why? Because He's the one. He's the end. He's the one they've been waiting for. Do you see in verse 42? The Savior of the world. But then there's a second group. This is the pure-blooded Jewish people, right? We see this in the next scene, verses 43 to 45. That's your next paragraph, I imagine. We are told here that Jesus comes back to the same place where he performed his first miracle in John's gospel, where he turns water into wine. Have you heard that story? We are told something really confusing, though, in verses 44 through 45, which should actually cause our spiritual ears to perk up a little bit. Because we are told as a commentary by John in verse 44 that Jesus himself has said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But then in verse 45, we see that the people in his hometown welcomed him. Did John screw up? Like, whoops, mistyped that, you know, delete, backspace, whatever it was. No, this is intentional. Because what John is doing is he's showing us why they welcomed him. Did they welcome him because they had come to believe by his first miracle that he was the savior of the world? No. They welcomed him because of the miracle he performed. Right? They welcomed him because Jesus has some tricks. Right? He can do some stuff. Maybe we can get some benefit from this guy being around. So Jesus offers entertainment. He's a, he's a problem solver, right? They weren't just seeking him as their savior and king over their lives, someone who would rule them and they would submit their life to. No, they were seeking Jesus so that he could do stuff for them. So in a real way that they could be Lord over Jesus, that he would do their bidding. And we see this more clearly as we read on in this very specific request of this official Look at verse 46. It says, So Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, an official was a man of influence and affluence. 
but he's come to a place where he is desperate, right? Where his position, his money has no more pull. It can't fix this kind of problem. And I think in a real sense, this is a fitting story for those of us who live in the American West. I mean, you could maybe even say uh, those of us who live in Redlands. I haven't lived here long, you know. Um, But generally speaking, a city of influence and affluence, uh, from the little research I've done and and beginning to talk to people here, it's it's a city filled with people who claim that they have no need of God until potentially something happens in life where our influence and our money and our networking runs dry. Why does this official seek Jesus? Well, he had a rough situation to say the least on his hands and he needed someone to fix it. So he comes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can be the solution to his problem. Look what he's saying. He's saying, come down and heal my son. The word child is actually a diminutive word here. The guy basically says, please come before my dear little one dies. I mean, this guy is in agony. Let's just try to hear his voice, you know? I mean, what good parent would not be in agony? I mean, you're, you're at the end of your rope. But see, guys, Jesus doesn't just want to heal the son physically. He wants to heal the whole family spiritually. And the only way that this will happen is if this man can get his eyes past the miracle itself and on to the one doing the miracle. That's what has to happen here. So Jesus challenges him twice. And the way he challenges him at first is by using this official as an example of this widespread problem. He says, unless you people see signs, meaning miracles, you will not believe. He's saying this to the people of his homeland. You're all seeking me because I can do stuff. Right? You like this bit. Right, the man gets even more polite, though, and what does he say? Look in verse 49. What does he say? Sir, please come. Right, this guy has no idea who Jesus is, and we see that because he's just calling him sir, right? That's what you say to your grandpa or something. I don't know. He's not coming to Jesus to worship him as the Son of God. He wants something from Jesus. Right, he has no idea. Jesus is like Gandalf or I don't know, Miracle Max from Princess Bride or something. All he knows is that Jesus is a conduit of help for a bad situation, maybe. So do you see the contrast that you're supposed to see? There are two types of people in this world that seek after Jesus. I would say then two types of people probably in this room, if we're honest, that seek after Jesus. Right? There are one, people who seek him because Jesus is a means to an end. I want this, maybe Jesus can accomplish that for me. And there are people who seek Jesus because they know he is the great end. So we are confronted ourselves with that question. I mean, really, why are you after Jesus? Are you after something from Jesus? Or do you really just want Jesus? If you think about it, just the definition of a means to an end, what is that? We use that phrase a lot, but it's still worth kind of exploring together, a means to an end is a thing that is not really valued in and of itself, right? It's not important in and of itself. It's just a utility, right? It's useful to achieving something else. 
the thing that like really matters to us. But that's, that's what it means to an end actually is. And we do this all the time. I mean, this starts at a young age. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to go play at my friend's house because they had like a trampoline, right? Or they had cool baseball cards. You know, that was what I was into. You know, or I needed a buddy to play basketball with. I didn't have any brothers, you know? And so I really wanted something else. And so I wanted to go to my friend's house, not just because I loved my friend, because I wanted something else. I mean, I remember when I was a youth pastor in the Bay Area, and I would try to make my best pitch. Jonah probably knows this. I don't know. But, you know, maybe everyone's grown up by now, you know. But when I was a youth pastor, I'd make my best pitch for why they should come to an event or camp or something, and I would just wait for the the question from the guys, you know, are are there going to be girls there, you know? And uh, I would be like, yeah, sure. And I would, you know, I don't know. But whatever it takes, you know, that kind of thing. But the social scene or an event was seen as a means to a greater end, right? The girl. But even as you age and you date, it gets more serious, you start thinking about marriage, right? This really still exists, it's just a little more subtle. I mean, I don't know, you don't have to admit it, but I mean, maybe you've made the list, right? The list of everything you really want quality-wise in a person or that you don't want in a person. And then we could be honest, when you first fall in love with someone, you have to admit that you often fall in love with them for the things that that person gives you, right? You're attracted to them, and that feeds some sense of importance in you because they actually like you back, or it feeds that desire in you, or you like how that person makes you feel, they make you feel secure, whatever. I mean, we believe this objectively. We just hate seeing people used as a means to an end, right? In your workplace, if someone's just using you to, to get the, something else that they want as utility, or if you're treated like an obstacle, it's dehumanizing. We hate it. We, we, we do this even in our marriage. I mean, imagine just today. I mean, I get to celebrate 16 years of marriage with Elizabeth this Friday. So really excited about that. But could you imagine? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, really, could you imagine if after the service you're like, wow, Josh, that's great. What are you guys doing? And my response to you was so jerkish. And I was just like, I don't know, I don't really want to hang out with Elizabeth, but, you know, she feeds me f- food and, you know, I don't know what else you'd feed somebody, but, you know, gives me food and, you know, she takes care of my children, so I should probably do something. You would just be like, wow, this guy's a jerk, right? I mean, you just want someone to go like, oh, I just adore, which I do, I adore my wife. Like, you know, that's what you want to hear. That's why when you watch a romantic comedy and you see a guy or someone using somebody else, it just makes you sick, doesn't it? right? We get this, but we do this with Jesus all the time, right? It bleeds over with our physical health. Jesus, I will follow you as long as everybody in my family stays okay. Or the inverse, I'm good, but as soon as there's a crisis, Jesus, I will follow you if you heal, right? Or our emotional health, right? which praise God for the gift of his spirit and the, the things that the fruit he produces in our lives. It's a good thing. But we can go, I, I follow Jesus because it, it gets me more clear-headed. It, I get this peace that I didn't have or whatever it is. We want the things from Jesus or socially. I like these people. These are my friends. I don't want to be a part of this social circle, so I will do what it takes. Even spiritually, you guys. Right, we can use Jesus as a means to our end in ministry, 
as a church. How dangerous to say we have dreams, we have aspirations as a church or as a ministry or whatever it is, and we will use Jesus to accomplish that. As when we love the power of Christ over the person of Christ, that is a problem for us. When we love the power of Christ over the person of Christ, that is a problem for us. Maybe a more memorable way to say is if, if we love the presence from Jesus more than the presence of Jesus, we've gone way off. That is a problem. Well, how do you know if this is you? I think one way to tell if, if you're using Jesus as a means to end your life is if you're not getting the provision that you're asking for and you notice that your heart is growing bitter towards God, that is a sure tell sign that Jesus is a means to an end. I think one of the most sobering quotes, famous quotes from over 20 years ago by a famous pastor, uh, he said this, he said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? Why do we seek him? Jesus is not a means to an end, and he proves it. That's the last point. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, the hour when he began to get better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household, believed like the Samaritans believed. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. See, a sign is something that points beyond itself, isn't it? It's, it's pointing you towards the destination, it's not the destination. Like, I've never been to Joshua Tree National Park, I've wanted to go, I've heard it's beautiful. Could you imagine a day if I loaded up my family in our van and we drove all the way to Joshua Tree and we got to the sign that says, you've now entered Joshua Tree National Park, and we got out of our van and we we looked at the paint on the sign and, well, look at the font and, oh, there's the national park sign and we all got a selfie as a family in front of the sign and then we're like, this was great. And then we just went home. And you're like, oh, I, I heard you went. How was it? And I was like, oh, the sign was amazing, right? It was incredible. You'd be like, whoa, you like totally don't know life, you know, like how this works. That's just pointing you to the thing, to the real deal. Right? That's why John uses the word sign, not miracle, because it's pointing to the real deal. It's pointing to Jesus. It's not the thing. It's, it's pointing you towards the real thing. And so what, what does Jesus say to this man's request? What's his response? He says, go, your son will live. 
It's not a great response, is it? Right? It's actually a terrible test. Now, why do I say that? Because what does this man say? He says it twice. Please come down, right? Please go with me. Because all we've ever known about miracle workers is that they have to be there. Even the greatest miracle worker in the Old Testament, Elijah, he even healed a boy once. But he had to be there. This is how we think. Please come with me, right? Please come with me. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is making a claim that must have been astounding because he is saying, I'm not going to go with you because I don't have to. I'll heal with a word. I mean, do you realize how godlike that is? I mean, we, we can say, let there be a house, and then we got to build it or pay someone to build it, if you're like me. We, we could say, let there be dinner, but then we got to cook it, right? If you're a college guy, you got to go buy it, right? You're not cooking. But God says, let there be light. Boom. God's like orange tree. Right? Do you see Jesus is claiming God-like power. He's saying, I'm not a means to an end. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not just here to dish out some solutions to your problem. I am the end. I am God incarnate. We sing that at Christmas, right? Hail the incarnate deity. And so in his response to the man, he's saying, I want you to trust me. Okay? I'm not going with you, but trust me, your son will live. I said this is a terrible test because this man is confronted with the fact that if Jesus can't do what he's claiming to do, then his son is a goner. Right? So he's confronted with this question, can I trust Jesus? Can I trust this claim? What does the man do? He takes Jesus at his word and he departs. He believed in Jesus. But he's not just believing in what Jesus can do, he's believing Jesus. Guys, this official walked from Capernaum to Galilee. That's 20 miles. That's like going to Banning today, right? Walking there, or Ontario. You know, it's a long walk. Do you think this man was filled with high spirits that he's just skipping and grinning, like high-fiving people along the way, like, hey, how's it going? Great to see you, you know, as he's going along the way? Is he saying, I have no doubts, I'm claiming this healing? I doubt it. I bet he left kind of scared, but it doesn't matter. It didn't affect the outcome. Why? Because it is the object of our faith. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. You could walk to Ontario today and get on a plane. You could do that, and the plane could be like old and falling apart and pilots never flown before, and you could be like, I believe we're going to be fine and probably not going to be, you know? You could walk the whole way there and get on a flight. It's a brand new Boeing, and the pilot's been doing it for 35 years, and conditions are perfect, and you could be like, I don't know, and you could step on the plane. It doesn't matter. All it takes is getting on the plane. How much faith do you need? just enough to get on it. How much belief does this guy need just enough to go home? Just enough to go home. 
You see, you don't have perfectly wonderful faith. It's your faith that Jonah said last week, right, connects you to the vine, the life. It wasn't the man's faith that saved the son. It was Jesus' power that saved the son. And his faith was connected to his belief now in Jesus. How much did he have to have? Just enough to go home. In the late 1800s, there was a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. I never saw him live, right? But uh, he was really famous. He did some amazing things. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, He was known for tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. He once, which I wouldn't even zip line across Niagara, I wouldn't do anything. Um, But he did that. But he even once put his manager on his back and did it. He once took a chair out there and on one leg stood on the chair. He went out there and sat down and cooked an omelet and ate it. He wheeled a wheelbarrow across with 200 pounds in it and, and came back. And as the story goes, he said, you just saw me do that. Do you think I could take a human being across? And everyone said, oh, yeah, you know? And he said, are you sure? And they said, yes. And then he said, who wants to get in? And it was just like, no, no, someone else, you know? Silence. I mean, it was one thing to have this intellectual assent. But what does belief look like? What does it mean to believe? It means you get in the wheelbarrow. It means you can go home. And we often treat Jesus like Charles Blondin, don't we? As someone who does things for us, he entertains us. He's a means to an end. And what Jesus did to this official is he asked him to see past the entertainment, right? Past the utility. And to actually get in the wheelbarrow. And the man did. He's like, do you believe I am the one? Let me tell you guys, we will not get in the wheelbarrow which we all need to get in the wheelbarrow, if you know what I'm saying. If you simply view Jesus as a means to an end, you need to see beyond the provision to the provider, beyond the miracle to the miracle worker, beyond the means, and have your heart just rest on the end. How do you get there? How do you get there? Well, I think the answer is found in the image of a parent and a child, right? That's what this whole thing is about. I mean, if you asked me why I love my kids, pick any any one of them, I would just say, well, I love them because I love them, because they're mine. Meaning I don't love them because of anything they do for me. And that became apparent when they were like really little, you know? When you're just changing diapers and losing sleep and they don't do anything for you, you know, like nothing uh, at all. So, um, you know, you would still then just feel so smitten for your kids. I'd be like, oh, I wish they would, could just hug me and say, Dad, I love you. And their little arms couldn't even do it. But it didn't matter, right? I was smitten. Why? Because they're mine. They're my kids. This is what I'm trying to say. When the man got home, John says he believed in verse 55. Why? Because he knew Jesus loved him. Right? When he got home and his son was alive, what did he probably think? 
Jesus didn't blow me off. He didn't blow me off. I wonder if you're here this morning and you believe God has blown you off. He's blown you off. If that's true, you guys, we have way more evidence for how Jesus hasn't blown us off. Where do we have that evidence? Well, it's in the cross, isn't it? Do you see the father here didn't lose his son because Jesus saved him? But Jesus, you guys, was the son who wasn't. This is a sign, right? It's pointing to him. We know this. God the Father gave his son away to the world in death. The one who is performing the healing, Jesus, is the son who will not be saved at the point of death. Right? Jesus can save us because God the Father did not save Jesus, his son, at the cross. And when you see that, when you see that, you can begin to love Jesus for who he is and not just for what he could do for you. Jesus was the son who was not saved so that you could be. God has not blown you off. We've asked for good, important things in our lives that God wants us to ask him for, but he has answered us where we have needed him the most to be saved from our sin and he has provided that in his own life. Right, we got to hear this, guys. Jesus doesn't love you just for what you can do for him. His love is pure. He loves you because he loves you. And the more that that saturates your heart, the more you will actually then be freed just to love Jesus for who he is. That you could get to heaven, and if he was not there, heaven would feel like hell. Because the one that your heart has been beating for would not be there. So why do we seek him this morning? Is he a means to an end? Oh no, he's not. He is our great end. And he's proven that because he can heal with a word. He is God incarnate. So guys, Jesus, is, he's our pursuit, right, as a church. He is the one. He's who our heart is longing for. And it is my prayer and aim that as a church in the days, weeks, months, years, and if Jesus tarries generations, it is our aim that our greatest end would be that we just want the presence of Jesus. That when we come into a room like this every Sunday, we want Jesus. He's who we want. Why else are we here? He's the one. We don't use him. We love him because he's first loved us. Let's all pray. Father God, this morning we do come to you and we are so thankful for your patience with us, for your unmeasurable grace. I know in my own life the amount of grace I would need could probably fill an ocean. Lord, we are so humbled and we are so in awe of you. And we, we wonder at you that you have come to redeem us, to rescue us, and that cost you your life. Lord, I pray that we would worship you as you deserve and that you would continue just to, to clarify in our mind and our heart 
you as our great pursuit. Help us to trust you. Help us to get in that wheelbarrow today. In Christ's name, amen.